Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Really good to be here, yeah. Um, the passage for today is Ephesians 3, 1 through 12, and I will get to it, but the root will be circuitous, and it will be touching on the topic of mystery. So how many of you like to read mysteries? Raise your hand if you like to read mysteries, or you like to watch them on TV or movies, whatever. Okay. How many of you can just sort of take them or leave them? That's okay, too. Oh, Reuben. And... <laughs> And how, how many of you just absolutely just know, sorry, I hate mysteries. Anybody here? Because it's all right, too. No? Okay, so I have a question. Those of you, anyone who raised their hand and who really likes mysteries, just shout out a reason why. Challenging. They're challenging. Make you use your kidneys. Yep. What, what else? <laughs> Suspense. You don't know what's going to happen. What else? That's a bright light. I can hardly see your little faces. The, <laughs> Good one. And, and, and well delivered, sir. You have watched Mysteries, I can tell. <laughs> okay. And, and, sir, you who can take it or leave it. Why? What's, what's the story there? Ah. Ah. Tell, tell Trevor what you mean. Okay, fair enough. I have seen those mysteries and read them too. All right. So my history with mystery is relatively short and recent. If we're talking about books and stories with people who are trying to solve murders or robberies or other strange events. I was in Ruben's camp. I was in the I don't care. I've got other things to read or watch camp for a long time. Then I got older and I found some comfort and solace in reading thoughtful mysteries, not contrived. Not that I've read that many at all, but I really get their appeal. And I watch them on, I watch, dare I confess it, police procedurals in foreign languages are just a real passion of mine. <laughs> so, especially Icelandic ones. It's just so weird. Okay. The appeal of mysteries. Okay. Isn't life kind of mysterious. We're all trying to make sense of life, right? You guys, especially right now, I hate to sound old, but at your age, you know, you're trying to sort stuff out. You're trying to figure out what's going on anyway. And who are we and where are we going? And you're in a good place to do this, you know, learning about God, learning about the Bible. I, I want to suggest that there's something soothing about entering someone else's world in a fictional sense, so you're a bit safe from it, in a book or a story. And we realize when we do that, hey, that person has problems too, maybe worse problems than me, and they have questions too, and they're trying to figure it out. All this makes you feel like, oh, I'm not that alone. And, and this is for you, Ruben. You can even feel clever 
if you're able to see the clues ahead of time, if it's well constructed and you can solve the mystery, which is the wonderful thing about that kind of mystery, right? They can be solved. You find out who did it and why. You can close the book or turn off the TV and say, ah, I never trusted that guy. I knew. I knew it was him. Or maybe you're devastated. Maybe you say, oh, no, I like that character. I don't want her to be the murderer. You know, you just have these reactions. Murder. Mm, here I am talking about police procedurals and murder. Murder is a hard word, isn't it? Why would I want to spend time thinking about something so dark? Aren't we Christians supposed to be keeping our minds on whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, worthy of praise, right? Yeah, yeah, that is what we're supposed to be doing. It doesn't mean we can't examine difficult topics. And it turns out Christians actually, over the years, have been pretty good at this. I'm going to read you a description of why Dorothy Sears, who is a British Christian author, um, wrote popular fiction. I'm taking it from the website of The Plow, which is publishing a book of hers called, the, well, a book of theirs, it's a compendium, called The Gospel and Dorothy L. Sayers. So this is what they say. Sayers, like no relation to me, sadly. Sayers, like her friend G.K. Chesterton, found murder mysteries a vehicle to explore the choices characters make between good and evil along with C.S. Lewis and the other Inklings, with whom she maintained a lively correspondence, Sayers Listen used her popular fiction to probe deeper questions. She addressed not only matters of guilt and innocence, sin and redemption, but also the cost of war, the role of conscience, and the place of women in society. So all this to say, trying to solve Mr mysteries, sorry, and figure out why people do the things they do, including ourselves, that can be a worthy pursuit. It's okay to do that. Not all mysteries, however, are created equal. When mystery comes up in the Bible, it's not the kind of thing that we can figure out if we're just smart enough. Let's see, how about the Trinity? You guys got that one down? Huh? Or how can Jesus be fully God and fully human? And here's my favorite. Why did God create? I've heard people say why, and I just say, I'm sorry, no. I think that's a reduction. How can God be sovereign yet allow us to make choices? And what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? Paul says, for by him all things were created in heaven, and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This makes my eyes cross. It is so cosmic. It is so mysterious. And if God had not revealed that to us, we would have had no idea Jesus did and does all that. And here's the wonderful part, the wonderful part. Even though the Holy Spirit has revealed this to us through the word, and we can grasp some of it, we cannot even come close to figuring out what all of this means, right? We can just stand in awe and say, oh, wow, God, and worship him. 
The Bible is full of mystery, and I'm glad. Would you want a God who you could figure out? Would you want a God whose mysteries you could explore and catalog and check off and come to the end of? Okay, so that was my really long introduction, very circuitous. Um, And now we're going to read the passage. And I want you to listen for three words, mystery, unsearchable, and light. What were the three words? You are awake. Thank you. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Did you hear the word mystery? I don't know, you better have. How many times? Any mathy kind of people in here who counted? Oh, I'm so disappointed. Four times. Four times. Someone's holding up four. Good job. Um, Did you notice that Paul revealed the mystery that was hidden for generations? What was it? Don't be shy. What was it? Yeah, those pesky Gentiles. (laughs) They get to join in. Yeah. Um, And who gets to see it? Sorry, Trevor. (laughs) The, these guys, these these mysterious rulers and authorities in heaven, but everyone down here too, right? He's trying to bring this to light for everyone, okay? Let's look at these words. Oh, wait. So we've got that settled, right? This is a mystery. Why? Why? Why did God do that? That way, Matt. Help us. Why? No. Why did God plan it that way? Yeah. Unsearchable, what a good segue. I didn't pay him for this. The next thing (laughs) is unsearchable. The words unsearchable and light, right? He said to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Unsearchable is a wonderful word. You cannot come to the end of those riches. You can't, but you're invited to dive in. And bringing God's plan to light for everyone, this hidden mystery that has been revealed but is still pretty mysterious. See, I find this stuff really, really cool. But I've also noticed some things about myself and sadly about my brothers and sisters in the faith in general. And here's one of the things I've noticed. We are not always okay with mystery. We care a lot about what God says, and we want to take it seriously and understand it, and that's a good thing. But it can be unsettling to think too much about God. We are little and finite. We're worth so much. We're so precious in God's sight, but we are still quite limited in our capacity to love and know God. That glass we're looking through, it's pretty dark, isn't it? So how do we tend to handle God's mysteries? Just think about that for a minute. This is your self-work that you're going to be doing. Okay, how do you personally handle God's mysteries when you come up against them? Think about that for just a minute. Okay, now that you've been very honest with yourself, what do you notice about the way people around you handle it? Just take a minute and think about that. How have you seen people handle mystery? Okay, keep all that to yourself for now. But do think about it. Hang on to those thoughts. Okay, so you should have a little handout, right? Pick that up now and look at it. My intro to lit students will be familiar with this poem. It was written by Billy Collins, um, former poet laureate of the United States, a prolific poet. I love his poetry. He wrote this poem about what it was like for him to teach his students about poetry. I'll read it first, and then we'll talk. Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into the poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. That's such a great poem. <laughs> I just love that poem so much. Okay, what's going on in this poem? We've got this teacher trying to help his students enjoy a poem and appreciate it and come to grips with at least some of its meanings without beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. He uses several oh, oh, sorry. He uses several images to explain what he hopes his students will do 
think about this, when confronted with something they don't instantly understand, confronted with the mystery of the poem, perhaps, they can hold the poem up to the light so they can see its colors. They can press it to their ear to see if they can make out what it's saying. If it's still a mystery to them, they can try something more radical. Drop a mouse into the maze, see if it finds its way out. Have you ever had a mouse running around in your mind? Hmm? Working on something you didn't get? Sometimes when you least expect it, that little mouse shows up with an answer in its tiny paws. Of course, sometimes it just stays in there and just goes round and round, gnawing, gnawing. But we hope that is not the case for you. The image I want to focus on, though, that I find so incredibly beautiful is this one. Walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. So beautiful. Such a careful, loving way to describe trying to explore something profound and significant and difficult to access. You've experienced this in real life, haven't you? Maybe not. You all carry your phones and have flashlights. But you're in a new place, and you walk into the room, and the light's out, and it's night, and it's so dark you cannot see a thing. You reach for the light switch where it's supposed to be, and it isn't there. So you move forward carefully in the dark, one hand on the wall, okay, feeling your way forward slowly and carefully. Why? So you don't get hurt, don't stub your toe, don't trip over something. But you don't give up because you got you got to find the light. And finally, you can feel that switch beneath your fingers. And you turn it on, and instant light. You can see. At least you can see more than you did before. God's mysteries, the ones he reveals to us, are not a poem. He can be very poetic, but they are not a poem. But we can still respond to them the way Billy Collins' students did. Sometimes I feel like we take the beauty and the unsearchable riches of God's mysteries and try to tie them to a chair and torture a confession out of them. We start beating them with a rubber hose to find out what do you really mean. Sometimes, also, we might be tempted to think that we alone have figured this out, heard a special report from God that for some reason, centuries of Christians have somehow missed this. And it's up to us to set everyone straight. You run into that, run the other way. Or perhaps we just find all this exhausting and we let someone else do the work for us, the heavy theological lifting. We take their word for it, consider the case settled, and go on with more practical things, like serving God in the real world. Do you see yourself in any of this? I see myself. Remember when I asked you how you handle mysteries? What happens when we approach God's mysteries and try to cut them down to size in little pieces so we can keep, keep track of them? What happens to us as human beings? I think it shrinks our capacity to love God and to love others. I think it makes it easier for us to miss the beauty in the people around us, the people right in front of us, the people who need Jesus' light. 
the people who need access to the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're too busy seeing their flaws and shortcomings, or we get caught up in how we can fix them so they're more like us, make us less uncomfortable. Instead of walking into the dark room with them, looking for the light switch that will help them see, we flood them with the blinding light of our knowledge, which has never saved anyone, or we give up on them altogether. And when I say we, I am talking about myself. I want to share a picture of what it might mean to walk with someone who's in a dark room and needs help finding the light switch. This comes from a short story by Raymond Carver. It's called Cathedral. In this story, we're introduced to a narrator who is not instantly likable. He's very honest about his feelings, and for that reason, not instantly likable. In fact, though, he's a bit of a mess. He doesn't tell us his name in the story or even the name of his wife, but he reveals a lot about himself over the course of the story. As a human, he is closed down. He lives a tight life, an emotionally confined life. And although we don't know the source of his pain exactly, we do know, we see in the story, that he expends a lot of energy trying to numb himself to the pain. He says, every night I smoked dope and stayed up as long as I could before I fell asleep. My wife and I hardly ever went to bed at the same time. When I did go to sleep, I had these dreams. Sometimes I'd wake up from one of them, my heart going crazy. The narrator seems shut down in other ways. The story opens like this. This blind man, an old friend of my wife's, he was on his way to spend the night. His wife had died, so he was visiting the dead wife's relatives in Connecticut. He called my wife from his in-laws. Arrangements were made. He would come by train. She hadn't seen him since she worked for him one summer in Seattle 10 years ago. But she and the blind man had kept in touch. They made tapes and mailed them back and forth. I wasn't enthusiastic about his visit. He was no one I knew, and his being blind bothered me. My idea of blindness came from the movies. In the movies, the blind moved slowly and never laughed. Sometimes they were led by seeing-eye dogs. A blind man in my house was not something I looked forward to. You like this guy yet? The blind man's name is Robert, and he has his work cut out for him trying to connect with the narrator. We get to know Robert as we watch him interact with his hosts. Robert comes across as comfortable in his own skin. He also takes a relaxed interest in the narrator every once in a while, asking him a question, and he even gives him a name of sorts. He calls him Bub. Late in the evening, after they've eaten and drunk quite a bit of scotch and even smoked a joint, which was a first for Robert, the wife has fallen asleep. Robert and Bub keep talking. They have the TV on, and a program comes on on the church and the Middle Ages and cathedrals. And they start talking about it, and Bub realizes that maybe Robert has never seen a cathedral. 
He tries to describe what's going on in the show, then stops. Something has occurred to me. Do you have any idea what a cathedral is? What they look like, that is? And Robert admits, no, no idea. I know some things about them, but no idea. And then he says, maybe you could describe one to me. I wish you'd do that. So Bub starts out. To begin with, they're very tall. They reach way up, up and up toward the sky. He goes on to talk about buttresses and carved devils, and he feels like he's doing a bad job of it, but he keeps trying. Robert is patient, just wanting to hear. They're really big, Bob says. They're massive. They're built of stone, marble too sometimes. In those olden days, when they built cathedrals, men wanted to be close to God. In those olden days, God was an important part of everyone's life. You could tell this from their cathedral building. Robert has a question. Hey, listen, I hope you don't mind my asking you. Can I ask you something? Let me ask you a simple question, yes or no. I'm just curious. There's no offense. You're my host. But let me ask if you are in any way religious. You don't mind my asking. And Bub answers. I guess I don't believe in it, in anything. Sometimes it's hard. You know what I'm saying? And Robert says, sure I do. Bob apologizes for not being able to do a better job of describing a cathedral, but Robert has an idea. He asked Bob to find some heavy paper and a pen so they can draw a cathedral together. Bob finds a brown shop shopping bag, brown paper shopping bag, and a pen, and the two men sit down beside each other on the floor in front of the coffee table. And Robert's there, they smooth it out, and he runs his fingers over all the paper, the edges. He finds the corners. All right, he says. All right, let's do her. And now I'm going to read to the end. This is Bob talking about Robert finding his hand. He found my hand, the hand with the pen. He closed his hand over my hand. Go ahead, Bob, draw, he said, draw. You'll see. I'll follow along with you. It'll be okay. Just begin now, like I'm telling you. You'll see. Draw, the blind man said. So I began. First, I drew a box that looked like a house. It could have been the house I lived in. Then I put a roof on it. At either end of the roof, I drew spires. Crazy. Swell, said Robert. Terrific. You're doing fine, he said. Never thought anything like this could happen in your lifetime. Did you, Bob? Well, it's a strange life. We all know that. Go on now. Keep it up. I put in windows with arches. I drew flying buttresses. I hung great doors. I couldn't stop. The TV station went off the air. I put down the pen and closed and opened my fingers. The blind man felt around over the paper. He moved the tips of his fingers over the paper, all over what I had drawn, and he nodded. Doing fine, the blind man said. I took up the pen again, and he found my hand. I kept at it. I'm no artist, but I kept drawing just the same. My wife opened up her eyes and gazed at us. She'd been sleeping on the sofa. She sat up on the sofa, her robe hanging open. She said, what are you doing? 
Tell me, I want to know. I didn't answer her. The blind man said, we're drawing a cathedral. Me and him are working on it. Press hard, he said to me. That's right, that's good, he said. Sure, you got it, Bob, I can tell. You didn't think you could, but you can, can't you? You're cooking with gas now. You know what I'm saying? We're going to really have us something here in a minute. How's the old arm, he said. Put some people in there now. What's a cathedral without people? My wife said, what's going on? Robert, what are you doing? What's going on? It's all right, he said to her. Close your eyes now, the blind man said to me. I did it. I closed them just like he said. Are they closed, he said. Don't fudge. They're closed, I said. Keep them that way, he said. He said, don't stop now. Draw. So we kept on with it. His fingers rode my fingers as my hand went over the paper. It was like nothing else in my life up to now. Then he said, I think that's it. I think you got it, he said. Take a look. What do you think? But I had my eyes closed. I thought I'd keep them that way for a little longer. I thought it was something I ought to do. Well, he said, are you looking? My eyes were still closed. I was in my house. I knew that. But I didn't feel like I was inside anything. It's really something, I said. I am not going to tie this story to a chair, beat it up. I'm not going to argue that it's a depiction of a believer leading someone to God. But I am going to put it out there as an incredible picture of one person walking into a dark room, helping another person find the light switch. We could use worse models for how we hold out the word of life the unsearchable riches of Christ to everyone around us. Paul tells us in Romans that people know, they know there's more than what we can see. Many are hungry to look into heaven. And we can walk with them quietly, side by side, without listing all the answers to questions they haven't even asked yet. I'm not saying there are no answers, and I am definitely not saying you shouldn't try really hard to figure out what those answers are and be able to articulate them. I'm just saying, let's leave room for people to walk into their dark rooms searching for the light switch. We can walk beside them if they want us to, helping them look for the light. And when they find the switch and start to ask questions, let's be honest about what we know and what's still mysterious to us. And let's tell them that, yeah, God's mysteries are a little overwhelming. But aren't they also beautiful in all this light? I'd like to close with a prayer. Father, thank you for your mysteries, your beauty. Thank you for the unsearchable riches of Christ. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to bring to light for everyone your beauty, your holiness, your power, 
your salvation. I ask for all of us, Lord, that you would help us be patient as we look for light switches for ourselves, for others around us. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.